4: Sadly, I think what happened is most Muslims started to define themselves as being against the West. So, if the West was going to be individualistic, well, we were going to be collectivist. So, if the West was going to be uh, logical, we're we're going to be excessively emotional and angry. And that might not have been spelled out, but it, it came down to if the West is going to disregard history. Or we are going to reimagine a, a perfect form of history.
5: That was Ed Hussein talking to Tom Holland about the history of Islam and the challenges it faces in the modern world.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, where the UK's best selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
5: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In each issue of our global history title, BBC World Histories, we feature an interview piece where the author of a new book, discusses the content with a fellow expert. For the latest edition, the subject under scrutiny has been the global history of Islam, which is the subject of a new work by the author Ed Hussein. He was joined for this discussion by Tom Holland, a historian, author and broadcaster, who wrote a book in 2012 entitled In the Shadow of the Sword, about the emergence of Islam in late antiquity. Here for the podcast, you'll have a chance to hear some of their discussion.
3: Hi, my name is Tom Holland, and I am here with Ed Hussain, author of The Islamist, who has uh, a fascinating new book out, The House of Islam, A Global History, um, and I have met up with him in the heart of Westminster to talk about it. Um, And Ed, rather than begin at the beginning, I want to begin at the end, and your very last paragraph, and I hope I'm not you know, betraying any spoilers here for, for for your readers, but you end it by saying, "The House of Islam is on fire," which is a very dramatic image. Mm. Why do you think
4: the House of Islam is on fire in what way? It's a great question, Tom, and uh, a, a delight to speak with you about this important subject because you've written about it and thought about it yourself over the years and and the main reason why the House of Islam is on fire is because there are people, arsonists, reside within the house. And these are people who are adherents to a form of thinking and actors in line with that thinking. And those actors include the government of Iran, uh, extreme Islamist organizations, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Hezbollah, and uh, extreme Salafis. So that entire category of people have reduced Islam to being a political confrontational ideology. So that's why the House of Islam is on fire. It's uh, due to the activities and the political program of the aforementioned entities. But why Why do you think that they're doing it? I mean, w- w-
3: what is feeding these flames?
4: So this is where the, uh, the the book I think is very useful in trying to explain the, 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 the hundred year humiliation that most Muslims felt throughout from Napoleon's invasion, if we have to put a specific date on it, in 1798, I think, down to the the First World War. So th- that period of about 120 years was a very, very painful, humiliating, uh, disrespectful uh, period for Muslims because it didn't chime with who they were as a people, didn't, didn't reflect their history, nor did it... Um, Uh, speak to what Muslims are supposed to be, uh, a warrior people with the upper hand globally. I mean, Bernard Lewis talks about that brilliantly, that for for a thousand years, Muslims were the global superpower. And now suddenly they were reduced to losing uh, uh, imperial territory, losing the technological race. That 120 years or so put Muslims completely out of joint as to who they were historically and what they expected to be. And as a result of that loss of empire, the Ottoman decline and you know, the formation of 22 plus states on the corpse of the Ottomans, that led to the formation of, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood and um, an in Indian subcontinent, Jamaat-e-Islami, and then a whole range of other more extreme and sometimes violent organizations. So you asked why, I think there's a long explanation.
3: But, I I mean, I absolutely agree with you that that, um, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, I mean, even if symbolically is an absolutely key event in this, because up until that point, kind of Islamic civilization had been a world unto itself, hadn't it? It hadn't really had any cause to take much interest in what the Franks, in the barbaric regions of Western Europe were up to. And then suddenly you get Napoleon crashing in with his hot air balloons and his chemistry sets and his philologists. And the Islamic world has really to wake up to what is going on in Europe. To what extent do you think that the need to kind of integrate Western technology, but even more, I suppose, Western ideas has helped or hindered the formation of the kind of Islam that you would like to see?
4: It's the ideas that you mentioned and the battle of ideas that's key. You know, on, the, on the technology front, uh, whether it's to do with scientific innovation in relation to medicine, or the advanced uh, uh, arms that uh, the, the French troops possessed, I mean, you see the Ottomans trying to emulate um, you know, French military attire or the, the latest uh guns and whatnot that were, that were available in the west but so the, the imitation wasn't a problem but they could not understand what was driving western innovation and what was driving uh, the european thought process and behind that was two or three big ideas and those two or three big ideas are still with us and those two or three big ideas uh, haven't had the necessary impact on the muslim world today one is the pursuit of complete individualism that uh, you know that Napoleon was not the first time the Muslim world encountered uh, you talked about the Franks or the crusaders you know there was sustained uh, two-way conversation for at least uh, 200 years but why was it that the crusaders were not able to leave behind a legacy that troubled the Muslim world one of the reasons for that is the crusaders did not bring Iraq, did not bring a world view to the Muslim world that was in complete uh, uh, contradistinction to where Muslims were. You know, because, because they were Christians. They were Christians. They had a holy book, and you know, the, the fight was over Jerusalem and the holy land. And the fight was a holy fight of some sort. And, they, and, and both Muslims and Christians, whether they, they, they be Orthodox or otherwise, broadly agreed on, 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 on you know, man life in the universe. But Napoleon and the French Revolution brought something that was a, that was a, that was a shock to the, the Muslim mind. And it still remains a shock to the Muslim mind. And that's one of the reasons why we find it so hard to reconcile. individualism is one uh, idea uh, uh, and the the second is the pursuit of rational thought wherever that conclusion led to uh, independent of religion or tradition that was hard for muslims to absorb because you know most muslim communities the tribe is important the ummah is important the family is much more important than it was say for rousseau or for voltaire um and the, the third is that for f- the French revolutionaries and by extension those who aspired to be more like France in Europe, history was a burden. History was something that, would, that was uh, you know, that, that had to be forcefully removed. Ties with the Catholic Church had to be ended. Robespierre spoke about new, a new calendar, a, a new birth. Now, for for most Muslims, history is sacred. History isn't something that was lived uh, over there and, uh, and is, is a burden. But history is something that you know is among us and ought to be uh, revived and our best days were were the past as opposed to the french revolution or the enlightenment mindset that says our best days are yet to come so those ideas of individualism versus history versus the, the muslim collectivist thought in contrast to where uh, europe was heading and firmly places itself now that's where the real challenges are. And sadly, I think what happened is most Muslims started to define themselves as being against the West. So if the West was going to be individualistic, well, we were going to be collectivist. So if the West was going to be uh, logical, we're we're going to be excessively emotional and angry. And that might not have been spelt out, but it it came down to if the West is going to disregard history, well, we are going to reimagine a a perfect form of history. Um, And it it boiled down to a, a crude competition and... Rejecting everything that the West stood for, at the same time trying to embrace what the West had become, there was a there was a strange love-hate relationship, and that's still at play. And uh, you know, in 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 direct response to your question, what what should have happened is to, to understand that even within Muslim tradition, there is a strong precedent for individualism and empiricist thought, and being critical of history and looking to the future, not necessarily imagining a perfect past. Whereas all of that tradition within Islam, you know. Uh, take, for example, the decriminalisation of homosexuality in in, in, uh, the the Ottoman Empire in 1857. Now, for whatever reason, the Ottomans were 120 years ahead of the rest of uh, the West. And here I include the Ottomans as being part of the West, being based out of Constantinople. But they decriminalised homosexuality. That was supported by al-Azhar and other prominent um, uh, Muslim uh, muftis and... Uh, thought leaders, because it was seen to be an individual act between individuals and, and and God and not for the state to be involved in. Now, that's revolutionary. Rather than build on that thought process, uh, what followed was uh, a, a conscious rejection of everything that the West stood for. I, I, I wonder, though, whether
3: there, there are kind of further dimensions to what made the West threatening to Islam, as it had classically been understood, that actually evolved from... Christian notions and one obvious one would be the notion of the secular which emerges over the course of the Christian Middle Ages and is particularly refined by Protestantism and you begin your book by saying that the word religion the English word religion is inadequate to, to cope with the the nature of Islam because what religion has come to mean in English is this notion of something that is distinct from the rest of society. So that you have the secular and then you have religion and that it is something that is private and it's kind of, it's Mm -hmm. the individual faith, the individual believer in his relationship or her relationship with God. Um, I mean, that notion of the secular is something that because Western power was so global in scope has kind of been enshrined across the entire world as something that is normative, as something that that has become a mark of modernity. I mean, has that been a, a, a
4: particular problem for Muslims? Do you think it, it's been a particular problem for the arsonists, the the, the, the Islamists, the jihadists, the uh, the group of people that want to make their version of Sharia a state law and impose that reading of Sharia on everybody else? For them, you're absolutely right. The the the, the word secular. Uh, is anathema and it, it, it's also bolstered by the fact that the West is secular, therefore we must be the opposite to whatever uh, uh, to, to whatever the West is. And that, that's why we see uh, the, the Iranians or the, the Taliban or others trying to carve out a different space. But I mean to paraphrase Bill Clinton, I, I firmly believe that there's nothing wrong with Islam that can't be fixed. By what's right with Islam. In other words, there's, there's there's a strong secular tradition within Islam that can be drawn on to make the argument for. So, a, so lit-
3: what is that secular tradition? What is that uh, uh, so that you, reaches back? Yeah, to- so,
4: you, so you you take uh, Islam's primary sources. In the Quran, there are verses such as, La ikraha fi din." there's no compulsion in religion. There's a verse uh, that says, uh, Lakum kum to you, your religion, to me, mine. Uh, in the very early days, the Prophet Muhammad allowed for various religious denominations, including pagans and Jews and Christians, to observe their religion freely that, without But that's imposing not entirely it. the same as the, the modern understanding of the secular, yeah. is it? Because, because the
3: modern understanding of the secular is a space in which religion full stop is removed, right, so in which... Everyone is kind of, you know, Muslims, Christians, Hindus are all kind of shoved to the corner. And then you have a a neutral space in the middle. And I I I don't think that Islamic civilization really sustained an idea of there being a neutral space within the
4: caliphate. Everything that's uh, in in the modern world and associated with modernity, by definition, doesn't stand the test of anything that was developed in antiquity. I mean, it's, it's just what it is, right? Modernity is a reaction to various ideas and movements that, that have reached us from antiquity. But what I'm saying is that there are principles and ideas within Islam that can be applicable to the modern world. Uh, you know, the, the, the Prophet famously saying, you know, when people asked him questions about this world, uh, that you know best about the affairs of this world. Now, you're right, it, that, that doesn't give us French laicity, but what it does give us is principles and ideas with which we can work. Um, Now, what I find fascinating at the moment is out in countries such as Tunisia, there's a vibrant debate going on as to whether the kind of secularism that you highlighted, Tom, whether that can work. And the answer is definitely no. But they increasingly look towards what they call Anglo-Saxon pluralism or secularism here in the UK and also in, 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 in the US where there's no hostility towards religion Uh, and whereas the state is, yes, religiously neutral, but citizens are allowed to be publicly pious. And it's that tension, I think, that's a major fault line across the Middle East today. So my contention is that you can find evidence and thought and principles in early Islam to support a a development of a fully modernised secular state today without compromising the individual's piety. I I mean, I suppose that what, what... we might call
3: um, a a kind of more hardcore Muslim, um, more radical Muslim, would say to that, that you are putting the cart of your kind of Western liberal instincts before the horse of what classical Islam was and that you are therefore altering it, changing it, diluting it, making it something that it wasn't originally would you recognise the force of that
4: criticism or...? Not for a moment, not for a moment, because I think those who make that criticism are the ones who have uh, lit the fire on the House of Islam. I think what I am articulating is a renaissance of the early uh, Muslim way of being, that to be a, a pious Muslim is an individual act, uh, you yes, there are you know, what we call mu'amalat or, 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 or more interactional and public dealings. I accept that. But ultimately, uh, you know, there's a there's a famous incident where the Prophet Muhammad looks at, um, at a man and says, that's a man of paradise. And his companions say, well, we've never seen him at a mosque. We don't know of any pious acts that he does. Why is he a man of paradise? And one companion goes and follows this person, stays with him for, for three nights and says, I haven't seen you do anything that confirms the the Prophet Muhammad's claim that you're a man. What is it that you do? Because what this individual was doing was secretive, was worshipping God at night quietly without being seen to be pious. Now, there there are these very strong traditions that we've got to lean on in order to achieve what it means to be Muslim in the modern world. And that's why I say it's a renaissance rather than in in any way for deforming or reforming Islam. And, And it is, I mean, it is the struggle
3: cope with being let's call it religious although we've talked about the inadequacy of that as an adjective in in the modern world which of course is not remotely exclusive to islam i mean this is in a sense is a challenge that that christians had to face long before muslims did Uh, you know it was it was notre dame that was being converted from a cathedral into a shrine to to, to, to reason in the french revolution long before uh, muslims had to had to cope with napoleon turning up in um in, in in cairo And so as a result, there is a sense in which if you are a a believer, if you are a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu, and you're faced with the manifold challenges that modernity represents to traditional paradigms of faith, you really have, I mean, just to be very reductive, you have two choices. One is that you go with the grain of modernity, which I suppose is what is what you are doing. It's what liberals in 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 Christian churches and Reform Judaism and 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 so on do. And the other is to is to take the fundamentalist option. And as you'll know, fundamentalism was originally applied to a kind of Protestant reaction to Darwinism and to all the kind of appurtenances of modernity. I mean. Essentially, the problem for Muslims, as for everyone else, is that you may have a sense of, of, of how your faith was in the past, where it wasn't challenged by, you know, modernity. Mm. But you, we can't get back to that, whether, we, whether, whether, we're, whether we're liberal believers or whether we're fundamentalist believers. we equally, you know, it, the past
4: is gone. We yeah. can't get back to it. Yeah. But the past also lives on. The past lives on in my recital of the Quran. The past lives on in my upholding the the, the, the teachings of the great philosophers and the great prophets of the past. Uh, I, but you see, I was
3: I was very struck
4: in in your
3: book. The, 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 the it's beautifully articulated your love of of poetry. You know your love of the great Persian poets and Rumi and Hafez and um, the the poets of of Al Andalus. And I was thinking that you know this what this This is a hymn of love to to a great civilization it's it, It's not just a hymn of love to to what we would call a religion it's a hymn of love to a civilization it's It's the beauty of the of the poets of the architecture of this extraordinary civilization that simply didn't have to cope with you know, anything that lay outside it so in a sense it's it's a bit like you know me kind of wistfully citing Milton or Dunn, you know, in memoriam of a vanished sense of of, of, of Christian faith, isn't
4: it? I mean, sure I mean you are mourning yeah. a civilization rather than a religion. I no, see. I, 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 I uh, hats off to you for capturing the essence of the book. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a hymn of love, but I don't think I'm mourning it. I, if anything, you know, I, I think I'm genuinely resuscitating its spirit. You know, it, it doesn't have to take the form of the. Uh, of Alhamra, it doesn't have to take the form of the Blue Mosque or the Taj Mahal for that matter, because those were all external manifestations. You know, that inner comfort, serenity, beauty, meaning in the modern world must take different uh, manifestations. And the big question is, well, what is that manifestation today? And that's the answer that we haven't provided yet. Well, what does being modern and Muslim mean today? How how does it manifest? Where are the where are the great artistic achievements of the modern Muslim world? And there what we're seeing is too much mimicking going on and not enough native expression of beauty in Jakarta or in Dubai or in Doha or in Riyadh, or even in Delhi or Dhaka or Karachi or Lahore. We, we haven't seen that, and, 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 nor have we seen it here in the West. And that's what worries me is that we've, we're losing that spirit that provides that beauty. And uh, in in Andalusia, as well as Hafez's poetry. You no, know, by the way, someone like Hafez, you, you you mentioned Hafez, and uh, there's a chapter in the book that talks about Hafez. I mean, he's a man, uh, and and he's talking about making love with God. Uh, this is in the yeah. 1200s. And then he's yeah. saying, "You've left me with a child, and that child is my soul." You know, and, and today. You know, we're shocked that there's that there's this kind of uh, homosexuality. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind
3: of, you know, you're wonderful about about the Sufi tradition, and the Sufi tradition certainly in the, in the modern West has been the one that has most appealed to non-Muslims, really as well. Um, <laughs> on the hippie trail, but that's a majority the majority tradition, feet, the yes. yes, yeah, that's, yeah. Majority.
4: that's that that is yeah. normal mainstream default Islam, and the evidence for that is you go into any village, any town, any city in the Muslim world today, and you see thousand-year-old
2: shrines. Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra p.com slash History Extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
3: Yes, the revelation to him of the Quran. You know what I'm going to say now.
4: <laughs> this
3: is this is subtitled a history, yeah. but it's not really history, is it? I mean, you are you are giving the received account of of Muhammad's life. That yeah. is that is a kind of it, it.
4: It's the traditional Muslim understanding. You're Tom of Holland, it. and you're famous for refuting that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yes, so but, but you know. But, I mean, you're you're more than welcome to refute it, and you should, and you should bring the the rigor of the the, the, the modern hi- historical methodology to it and make your argument. But I have also had the good fortune of studying at SOAS with uh, Gerald Horting, and the entire kind of Wansborough Crone tra- tradition was put to me, and I, I respect that historical criticism. But at the end of the day, I mean, academic history is a relatively modern innovation, and people. But, but, who but it is part of what
3: makes modernity so threatening to believe, isn't it? No, I mean, um, I've,
4: I've, I've studied that whole tradition from, as I say, Crony and others. And I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Bernard Lewis, for example. But I, I, but I also think that history is also received wisdom. History is also what Muhammad and his companions said he said. History is also how that's been passed down through the generations to us. I think that that's also valid and it's also important. Um, I'm not saying that there there weren't excesses in some of the layering of history undoubtedly and that's where I think the academic rigor is useful for us but at the same time it is history uh, and it's probably more living and meaningful history to a believer than it is to someone who spends time approaching it as as just stones and pottery and uh, in in pursuit of uh, manuscripts. Well, it's kind of interesting because you have, you, I mean, you have a, a really intriguing line about
3: the hadiths, sayings of Muhammad, which kind of provide the fabric of traditional Islamic understanding of what God wants and, and, and what man's relationship to God should be. And you say of these, you say, very little thought is given to the fact that the hadiths were written so long after the prophet's passing which, of course, is something I would absolutely agree with. And, and, and my take on that would be that they're most unlikely to have actually come from the mouth of the Prophet himself. Um, I, but, but I assume that's not what you're saying. You're saying that, I mean, it's, I, to, to be rude, it seemed to me that, that, that any hadith with which you personally disagreed with, you, you were kind of saying, well,
4: this is, this is unreliable. This is, this is not to be trusted. Would that be unfair? Yeah, somewhat. I, I, I've struggled with hadith over the years, and I've struggled with them because, you know, the the Quran describes the Prophet as rahmatul alameen a mercy unto mankind or to, or to or to the universe. And then you come across claims of Hadith where the Prophet was allegedly violent. Uh, you have illogical hadith about, you know, if a, if a fly drops into your drink and there's one wing uh, in the drink, d- uh, dip the other wing in, for in the other wing is the antidote to the poison. I mean, completely illogical uh, sayings. So um, the early Muslims uh, of the Mu'tazila tradition and others also had deep reservations about hadith. There's a famous incident where the second caliph forbids many of the uh, Companions of the Prophet, even attempting to write down hadith, Tadween al hadith, there's an entire science around it. My issue really is that we've lost that critical approach among today's Muslims when it comes to hadith literature in particular, because it was written at least 120 years after the Prophet. So it's But, but my about understanding
3: us- is is that there were, you know, that, that, that absolutely scholars um, back in the early centuries of Islam appreciated that there was the risk of fakes going Mm. in and fabrications, but that there was a science for evaluating this and that there were authoritative collections which were compiled and and that it was, you know, it has always been accepted that these collections essentially are to be relied upon. Um, So... isn't the approach of, of, of saying, well, actually, I, I, you know, I don't like this one, this, this is probably unreliable. I mean, isn't the risk there that you're tugging on a thread that, that risks pulling the whole tapestry apart?
4: Not for a minute am I saying that, you know, if one doesn't like a particular hadith, it's not um, reliable. My argument is something different, and that is in classical Islam, uh, those who collected hadith were known as pharmacists. Um, And those who issued edicts were known as doctors. So the problem today is that we've all become doctors and pharmacists. So we all go, when I say we all, most Muslims just go to Google and look up hadith on uh, a question of the day and then when you say, oh, this hadith appears in Bukhari, there's no understanding of the categories of what's fake, what's not, what's you know, alleged to be from the Prophet, which is what, what is strongly from the Prophet, what's definitely claimed to be from the Prophet. And even in the strongest hadith, the muhaditheen, the or those who collect hadith, would always say, Oh كَمَا or as he allegedly said. So you know, for me, it's it's bringing back that spirit of critical thought and bringing back the spirit of a, of, of a Prophet that's compassionate, kind, logical, thoughtful, and hadith have to be in, uh, in in keeping with the spirit of the Quran and the but spirit of the Prophet. But do you think you can
3: apply that same spirit to the Quran?
4: Or is everything in the Quran true? For me as a Muslim, yeah. everything in the Quran is true, but, but, but also the, the biggest reservations and the biggest areas of contention with modernity aren't all in the Quran. Most of them, whether it's to do with suicide bombings or yeah. with apostasy or with are, are in that but, are in are in claims of hadith literature. But so, there, you
3: know, there there are verses within the Quran as well which have been used to justify war and violence, um, or, or indeed slavery. I suppose. Um, I mean, you you, you say. Um, since the Quran mentions slavery repeatedly, should Muslims reintroduce that practice too? And and and
4: ISIS notoriously have responded to that question by saying, yes, we should. And the and the vast majority of the world's Muslims have disagreed with that, disputed that, and rejected that. And there's a there's a well-established principle from the very early days of Islam and throughout history, and that is the ijma' or consensus of the mainstream and the abolishing of slavery. I mean, what's interesting is that the early Muslim scholars always looked at what the Prophet tried to do. There was injustice vis-a-vis slavery, and
3: were the traditions in Islam of criticizing slavery as an institution, or is that something that, that only derives from kind of you know nineteenth-century European influence?
4: So that's a great question, Tom. I mean, I, as I cast my mind throughout Muslim history, what you see is an attempt to free slaves. What you see is veneration of those who allow for slaves to be free. Um, but and, as in Christianity, I mean, the same thing in Christianity, that,
3: that with a very few exceptions, there are some who criticise it as an institution. There doesn't seem to be this kind of mental leap. that the, you know, it's, it's treated as being something like hunger or disease. It's a bad, it's an ill, but it's just something that's there. And then it's, it's really only in the 18th century and 19th century in Europe that you start to get people who say the whole institution should
4: be abolished. Mm-hmm. Because and slavery became something about mass exploitation, I think it uh, always uh, uh, was. Yeah, so this is the big question. I mean, but, but, Most Muslims would say this is the this is the Muslim perfectionist his, his, history coming in again. That oh, there was no injustice, and therefore you know, Muslims are very kind to their slaves because the Prophet said to you to be kind. But, 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 but I suppose, I mean, I suppose what an ISIS ideologue would say would be
3: that actually, this is you know this notion that slavery is 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 evil as an institution and should be abolished is a Western idea that has infected Islam, and that in its classical period, no one had this idea, and so therefore it should be
4: abolished. I mean. That's correct. That is exactly what they will say. That's why the literalists, that's why they're dangerous, that's why they, they go back to this imagined idea Zero. That's why most Muslims and others disagree with them. But, but the, implica- I mean, the implication is actually a rather hopeful one. That that,
3: that if you know, the the vast majority of Muslims accept that that slavery now as an institution is evil, and yet that is that is perhaps an idea that has derived from the European tradition. Then there is scope for a kind of Islam that, that 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 welcomes traditions and ideas and thoughts from traditions outside Islam. That it
4: can be integrated into the fabric of you see the face. It's revealing to me that you think that that's uh, that's a big moment because I mean, Islam has always been exactly that. That it's. It absorbed from the the Byzantines. It absorbed. Yes, I, from the Persians, I, I, yes but but the reason it I say that, adopted but the reason that, I say that, that is, is because is because my
3: understanding of 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 how Islam, uh, Muslims classically have understood is Islam that it is the final revelation. It is the perfect revelation. It's humanity's last chance, um,
4: and that therefore, in a sense, it is complete. I mean, yes, it's complete in the sense that there's a verse in the Quran where you know. God says, today I have completed your faith. But I don't think most Muslim scholars thought that every answer to every question was in the Quran. For if that was the case, we would not have developed tens of schools of thoughts on on jurisprudence and observation and practice. What you have in the Quran are broad-based principles. And one one of the the greatest beauties of the, the Islamic history and its legacy for me is that this focus very early on from Imam Shatibi, Imam al and others in the, in the 10th and 11th century downwards about um, the maqasid of the Sharia, the aims of the Sharia, the overarching objectives being the preservation of life, the preservation of family, uh, religious worship, the intellect and surprise, surprise, private property. Um, so that's the mainstay of the Sharia. That's, that's what we're all supposed to be preserving Everything else, but, you know, whether it's the slavery, whether it's any, any the, the, those are just tactical manifestations that are open to debate and discussion. It's not it's not a fundamental of Islam. Those five things are the fundamentals. I mean, we spoke about uh, horses and carts previously. I mean, that's the horse. That's what should be front-loaded, the, those five objectives. And by that measure, what we're seeing in the West is that it's fully in keeping with what it means to be a Muslim. No Muslim is persecuted for being Muslim. Contrast to China, where you cannot... Observe religious freedom, nor in parts, uh, you know, own, own, own property, at least in in the past. So, yeah, you know, you're right that um, there are verses in the Quran such as slavery that most Muslims have have thought that that had a specific application at a specific time, and there's a contextual meaning for it. But in today's day and age, it, it it's not applied because it's thought that the whole point of slavery was that it was time limited. Similarly, in that same vein, I think that almost every other Quranic uh, edict that Muslims find to be difficult to observe today, that there's a scholarly way around it. This is the beauty of the, of, of the faith, that there, there are answers within it that allow you to adapt to today's reality and continue to be fully Muslim. It doesn't have to be either a suicide bomber or a complete sellout. I mean, it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? That, that this is true
3: of, of of Christianity as well as of Islam. That both religions have a kind of um, a moment where the divine ruptures the fabric of the diurnal. It's, you know, be it the incarnation of Christ or be it the revelation of the Quran to to Muhammad. For believers, there is this decisive moment in the. Course of world history where kind of everything changes. Um, And in both both faiths, you have a a corpus of scripture that enables the faithful to have a sense of of what it is, you know, the divine is speaking to them. And so I wonder in the present, for Muslims and for Christians, is this a help? In negotiating modernity, that you can look back, that you can say, "Well, you know, we have the example of the, the prophet's life. We have, uh, we have, the revelations that were given to him from God, um, and and this can provide us with guidance. Or is it a hindrance? Because essentially, you you know, you have you 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 have instincts that are bred of of, of, of being born into the twenty you know living in the twenty first century, and basically you have to go around trying to kind of adjust." your Inheritance of scripture and tradition to your kind of gut instincts as a liberal, but, but, perhaps. But why do
4: you assume that they're just adjusting is somehow problematic?
3: Well, I think, I think, um, that, that quite a lot of what we've been talking about suggests that it's problematic. That you know, you've been talking about the, the hadiths, for instance, the issues with apostasy or slavery or whatever. I mean, these are problematic, but,
4: yeah, aren't yeah. But they? I, um, for me, it is, yeah, you but, know, I'm
3: not, I'm not saying that this is exclusive to Islam. I mean, I, I. I, I was talking to Shashi Tharoor yesterday, the um, the Indian politician, and he was talking about Hinduism, and he was saying, "Well, yes, caste, you know, it it it, it existed, but it's not really fundamental to, to to Hinduism. And actually, there are lots of of uh, verses and passages where uh, the ancient Hindu sages." Um, you know, Scorned the idea of caste, and you get Christians who you know talking about the issue of homosexuality and saying, "Well, actually, there's a lot in the Bible that would that would support gay marriage." Or get you, and what I get with all of this is that believers gain immense sustenance from 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 their faith, and yet at the same time, there is a sense in which that faith is prompting them to kind of soft soap or shove to one side or or recalibrate elements within that tradition that is problematic for the way that they see the world in the 21st century liberal order.
4: Yeah. You see, I mean, inherent in your question is the emphasis on tier two issues as being completely primary and of vital importance to every believer. I mean, whether it's homosexuality or apostasy or... uh, I mean Even the issues around gender equality, uh, I mean, individual thought—those are tier two issues, uh, and you know, we're as, over, opposed,
3: as opposed to the kind of the blaze of the knowledge of God and and and, and tier and, one,
4: yeah, the existence of God, yes, tier one, yes, I mean, and that's that, where it yes. matters. And now, if if the thrust of modernity was for me to say that there is no divine existence, that there is no divine accountability for my actions, and then you know, there was no divine communication, i.e., revelation, didn't happen. That's an issue. And that's, you can say, well, oh, you've given up your very basics and your fundamentals. Well, that That's tier one. And so for every Muslim, tawhid or the oneness of God, Risala, or the communication through the Prophet Muhammad or Akhirah, an afterlife, that's where it's at. Everything else is detailed and open and has always been contested. It's just how contested and when and for what reason. So adapting to a modern world, if that meant my compromising the very three most important uh, facets to my belief system and to who I am, then I'm sorry, I can't compromise on, on, on God and somehow say, oh, there is no God. So that's what matters to me. And I think to most Muslims and to most Christians and other believers, the the tier one issues. Now, as long as the tier one issues are, are broadly left alone, all the other stuff is quite secondary. The problem with modernity, is the secondary stuff is what's primary to modernity. That's the issue. So, you know, if you don't mind my saying so, it's almost that you you have a modern trained approach to this, where you're you're putting all these contemporary issues out there as an, and yeah, and making putting well, in these, the, these are thinking. the lightning rods
3: that that you know continue to the lightning continues to hit in in Islam and in Christianity and all you know all kinds of religions. So that's that's why I bring them up. And I I just want you know a slightly more perhaps a, 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 a more depressing take on the the prospects for Islam and for um, faiths generally is that, might there be a case for saying that there are people who feel that the kind of the liberal take, you know, the liberal manifestation of Islam or Hinduism or Christianity is slightly pallid. Um, And clearly one of the things that religion gives is a sense of belonging to a kind of club, uh, you know, you you are against the world. You are part of a community, and if you look at at Islam, you you, you clearly see that in in kind of the people we've been talking about the, the the Islamists, the radicals. But you also get it in in Hinduism that you know there is a, a much more militant vein of Hinduism now than than existed previously. You kind of get it in Putin's Russia where. Orthodox Christianity is, 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 is really quite militant these days. Yeah. And I wonder, is, is there perhaps a sense in which, it's, you know, you might call it the thought for the day approach to religion, in which you'll have a, a, an imam or a vicar or a, a Hindu priest turn up on the radio for, before eight o'clock and, 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 and say totally inoffensive things that everyone could agree with. Aren't there people out there who want a bit more red meat and isn't that something that we're seeing? It's a global phenomenon. It's not just in Islam.
4: The, the red meat should be on tier two issues, and that's where the red meat happens to be at the moment. And we should—that's where we should keep them for for, for for the younger rebels, the teenagers. There is a desire to change the world, and there is. And I, I so you're I optimistic, but I think on balance, people over time, as as long as uh, I'm only optimistic that for as long as those of us who are on the. More modernized, thoughtful, pluralist arm of civilization that we continue to assert our values; that we don't give up; that we don't quit; that we don't say that the Islamists and the extremists are somehow right and more authentic as believers. Yeah.
3: Uh, so- but but to, to, to return to the question with which I, I opened, do you think that you know the the fire in the house of Islam can be put out? Uh,
4: the, the house of Islam is on fire at two levels. I, I think in in the Muslim world, over time, it will be put out because there is a normative default form of Islam. So when you have radicals in Egypt, there are institutions in Egypt, Al-Azhar and others, who will say, you are wrong. And you are wrong because of a thousand years of history, because of what Al-Azhar says. And, what the normative Islam is in Egypt. Now, here in the West, we have a much bigger problem, you know, in excess of 30 million Muslims. And because of the moral relativism that dominates society and everyone's right, translate that into the Muslim community. And then then you have the the Salafists and the Islamists. Who's to say they're wrong and based on what? And that's the long-term challenge that putting out that fire is going to be much harder because there's no right and there's no wrong. There's no truth and there's no falsity that whatever the, uh, the extremists say and the Salafis and the, the jihadis say is just as valid as what the Sufis and the secularists say. And as for, for as long as that moral relativism is at play and we don't have the courage to say that, you know what, you're fine if you want to be a Salafi, but we reject the ideas, we mock them, we sideline them. Uh, and if you're a Jihadi, you, you will not have uh, refuge and shelter in our communities and in our homes. And history is on our side and the future is on our side. Unless we have that moral conviction, then I fear that, that that part of the House of Islam, i.e. Muslims in the West, will not in any, will not in, in, in any near future uh, be, be, be seeing their fire put out.
5: That was Ed Hussein in conversation with Tom Holland. The House of Islam, a global history, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Bloomsbury. And you can read a version of this interview in issue 11 of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on migration, the civil rights movement and the history of Brazil, among other things. Look out for it in all good retailers now or find out more at historyextra.com. And that is about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.